Hello, I applaud you for coming today. I don't know if I would be here if I had a choice. Just being honest. And I especially am pretty sure that I might not be here if I had to drive any distance to get here, any significant distance to get here. So again, congratulate you for being here. <clears throat> you know, uh, when the couple is moving back, Frank and Barbara. Margaret. Margaret. Thank you. I appreciate that because I heard Barbara. Uh, Getting older, you hear things. You ever notice that? I guess the prince of the power of the air has a way of mixing things up even worse for elderly people. Margaret, I knew I knew that because I instantly thought of Ray Stevens a while ago when you when Margaret when I re re met you. I don't know if you know that song by Ray Stevens. Oh Lord, forgive me. Uh, Google it. No, don't. <laughs> it's about a phone stalker. It's me again, Margaret. <laughs> Stalking a phone stalker, talking, stalking a, a gal by the name of Margaret. Hallelujah. Amen. Margaret means pearl, right? Pearl. That's good. <clears throat> Be ready up there when I get to it to put up um, 2 Corinthians. And we're going to start with uh, chapter 11. The uh, 26th verse, somewhere in there. I'll tell you when I get to it. <clears throat> and then uh, we'll go, we're going to go into the chapter 12. It reminds me of the, the, the what was that question? Nothing? It reminds me of the, the guy, the businessman that was having so much trouble and he prayed... And to the Lord for a word, and he got it. And all it was was chapter 11. Thank you. That's bankruptcy, by the way. Chapter 11 is bankruptcy. Okay. Can I sing a song to you? That had to be... Was that you, Fran? (laughs) The only person I expected to say that was was, uh, Dorothy. (laughs) And you're sitting over there, so you're sitting over there where she is, so I thought it had... I thought it was you. Oh, I know why you said yes. You just wanted me to embarrass myself, don't you? (laughs) Okay. This afternoon at 2 o'clock at Elm Park Methodist Church is a special service. If you have lost someone, uh, uh, a relative or someone that's dear to you, or just someone that you know of from somebody else that's dear to you, uh, to suicide. If you've lost someone to suicide. Uh, and it's touched your life. 
there's a special service called Blue Christmas. It's supposed to be last Sunday, but if you know, the weather kind of was pretty bad. So it's this afternoon at 2 o'clock at Elm Park Methodist Church. Pastor Donna Martin is the pastor there. Sweet sister in the Lord. Boy, I'll tell you, full of the Holy Ghost and power. And uh, I'm going to be there because there's a number of people in our fellowship in my life that have lost their lives to suicide. And I learned something uh, about three weeks ago, maybe maybe four. Uh, I was calling someone to tell them uh, about it because I hadn't seen them in a while. And uh, it was someone who had lost someone to suicide uh, that was also special to me because it was a, a man that had been part of our church way, way back 42 years ago. And he had moved to Albany. And it was her brother, and it was in December. And especially hard when you have a loss of that nature in December because uh, December is when everybody else is so seem to be joyous with Christmas holidays and so uh, when everybody else is kind of celebrating that's when uh, it seems to be tougher especially if you've lost them four days after Christmas and the day after Susanna's birthday uh, John and Susanna Cedar, her brother, Mike Isbell. Now, if you go back that far, you, 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 I know Rodney and I knew Mike Isbell very well. His father, which was also Mike Isabel, was the administrator of Fox Hospital. Beautiful brother in the Lord. Had had a stroke and suffered uh, rejection not from his wife, but from other members of the family and uh, from the church. And uh, one Sunday, uh, she says, are you, you, you getting ready for church? She said, oh, I'm not going to go today. You go. And so his wife, Sue, his, his wife's name Sue as well, uh, she goes to church and when she comes back, she finds him hanging in the garage by a wire. And it just, uh, uh, I had just talked with him for about three hours, um, about three months before that. And it was just, it just was, just hit us both. And we've had others since then that we've lost that has meant so much to us. So if you need to cease, uh, uh, if you fall into that category, um, I hope to see you there at Elm Park Methodist Church at two o'clock for a, for a, it's called Blue Christmas. So, excuse me, I want to sing this song to you, but I want you to know that it's relative also to what I'm going to preach today, which was not changed. You know, this is, uh, this is kind of uh, one of those ironies of God, how God works. 
But I was planning on preaching this sermon last Sunday, and for some reason I didn't get to it, and I wasn't preaching it last Sunday on purpose uh, because of any because of what I've just said. Didn't have any connection. But I didn't I'm preaching this Sunday, and uh, it's about rejection and how to handle rejection. Uh, it's it's that's tough for anybody if you've ever been rejected, and if you haven't. You're a most unusual person because we've all had some very serious rejections if you've just lived long enough. Or maybe you're just an amazing person. And uh, I want to uh, sing a song. It's a secular song, but um, I'll do the best I can if my... uh, throat which has been aging as well over the years isn't able to sing it in the the tune I'm not a singer I mean I love to sing you know I love to sing all the time and about about the the, uh, the only thing I say is I can carry a tune but not very far <laughs> you know <laughs> but I do love to sing and if I in the middle I go into my Johnny Cash impre- impression imp- it's because uh, my voice is a little lower than, than it used to be. But uh, this was, song was written by Don McLean, and I'm there. I, I want the words up. I know it by heart. But uh, when you're, when, you know, I would sing with music, but I can't sing with music. If I have music, it distracts me, and I don't know how to, you know, do the right thing. So... Um, this is a, point, a song that is very appropriate, and I'm going to tell you more about it in a minute. It's called uh, Vincent. It's about Vincent Van Gogh. And if you're my age, you probably know this song. Pray for me. <clears throat> starry, starry night, paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day. With eyes that know the darkness in my soul, shadows on the hills, sketch the trees and the daffodils, catch the breeze and the winter chills, and colors on the snowy linen land. Now I understand what you tried to say to me, how you suffered for your sanity. How you tried to set them free, they would not listen, they did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. Starry, starry night, flaming flowers that brightly blaze, swirling clouds in violet haze, reflecting Vincent's eyes that china brew, colors changing hue. Morning fills of amber grain, weathered faces lined in pain, are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand. Now I understand what you tried to say to me, how you suffered for your sanity, how you tried to set them free. They would not listen, they did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now, for they could not love you, but still your love was true. 
And when no hope was left inside on that starry, starry night, you took your life as lovers often do. But I could have told you, Vincent, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. Starry, starry night, portraits hung in empty halls, frameless heads on nameless walls, with eyes that watch the world and can't forget, like the strangers that you've met, the ragged men in ragged clothes, the silver thorn a bloody rose, lies crushed and broken on the virgin snow. Now I think I know what you tried to say to me, how you suffered for your sanity, how you tried to set them free. They would not listen, they're not listening still. Perhaps they never will. That's it. Thank you. Wow. You sing like that and get an applause. That's, a, that's another miracle. Uh, I don't know if you know the history of Vincent van Gogh or not, but he was the first person who had a painting that sold for multiple millions of dollars. I think it was like, going back in memory, it was, a, it was like a field of flowers um, for like $35 million or something like that. Um, his, his paintings weren't always appreciated, though. Vincent van Gogh's father was a pastor, and he wanted to follow in his footsteps. So he went through seminary, and he was going to be a, uh, he started off by becoming a missionary. Now, what they call missionaries in those days were ones that pastored smaller churches that could not sustain them. And the bigger churches would sustain them in the, past, in the smaller churches. So he was sent to Belgium to pastor a coal mining city church, coal mining church. And when he got there, he had uh, received a very nice uh, regular fund from uh, the church. And uh, he had a very nice apartment. He had uh, three meals provided for him every day. Uh, All of it was paid for by the, the central office, you know, because there was no way that these coal miners... And when he went to to preach in the church... He did not have a very good turning out, and the ones that he did that did turn out didn't seem to be uh, listening to him very much. So he began to think that uh, he was a, a failure to communicate to these people the love of God. So he decided that he would uh, do something to identify with them. The Bible says Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So he went down in the coal mines to mine. And it describes in the book. uh, I also saw the movie, but I don't remember the movie that well. But I don't remember as as well as that it's not in in line with the, uh, 
the uh, book that I read. It's called Lust for Life, if you feel like reading the book. But you know, we see, you, you see those things where they push the carts onto an elevator and it goes down and goes to a shaft and you, they walk pushing an elevator and shaft. Well, the way this was is that the elevator that they went down in was about this wide. And you had to stand on a little shelf. It was like a conveyor belt that would go around like this. And you would stand on it and the wall would be right there. And you'd go down, 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 down. I, I, if some of you have claustrophobia, you, you're already experiencing, just from what I've said, it's like, oh my, my, I can't, I can't handle this. I, I know when I read it, I was like, and I was, I was in the Navy, I was on a ship, and I was below water on the, in, the, uh, in the decks, and we didn't have any windows or anything like that. And, you know, I, I know how to handle that, but the thought of that just terrifies me. Going down, 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 down. Then when you got to where they were mining coals, it wasn't some place where you push the cars in, you know, and you, you know, sh- shovel it in. No, no. Well, you crawled in on your elbows like this for a distance, sometimes, uh, th- you know, 300 yards. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So he crawls in and he helps with the thing and then he on the and then he comes out and he's just in time to go to church and he goes to church and he's completely black. He doesn't have time to wash it all off. He's he's just just a completely black with coal. And um and he gets up there to preach and from that moment things begin to change big time because he identified with the suffering of others. I have a book of origin of English words. I love it. I look at it all the time. And the word uh, passion, uh, the origin of the word, the English word passion originated describing the suffering of Christ. We still call going to see uh, a play or a movie about the crucifixion of Christ, the passion of Christ. And so, uh, but in the fourth century, there was a playwriter that took that word and started identifying it with other things like romantic love. And, you know, and then it took off from there to where if somebody had a love for something, like if you were a big fan of something or if you were like love golf and you went golfing all the time and you studied it and you worked at it, you'd have a passion for golf. Originally, that did not mean that it was strictly meant was talking about the suffering of Christ. And the only word that that uh, basically kept the, the completion or the, the meaning of the word is the word compassion, because compa- compassion or compassion, you have uh, identified with the sufferings of others. And this is what Jesus had. He was moved. He was motivated with compassion. So Vincent van Gogh was motivated by compassion. And so he went even further. He started having the place fill out, the, the church, and he went further. And he uh, gave up his uh, nice apartment and he rented a shanty. Now, this is some pretty cold areas like here in Belgium. And when you just have a wall 
one wall, you don't have two double wall, you don't have th- thermal windows, you, you know, you don't have insulation between, you just can see the cracks in the wall to the other side. He began to get sick, and the only way that he could heat his home was they would have this pile of coal dust that was thrown aside, and they would have these little tiny pieces of coal that would be, make it through that weren't usable. And so the, the ladies that weren't working, in the, their husbands work in the coal mine, they would go there with buckets every day, and they would pick these little pieces of coal out of the dust that was there. That was the coal that they would use to heat their homes with. And so he had to pick his own little bucket of coals to heat his homes, his home. And, he, and again, he got sick and everything. He gets paid a visit by the home office. And uh, at this point, I remember reading this. I was a Christian at the time, and I thought, what an amazing testimony of a man of God. What a witness that is to me. And how I wish I could, uh, I hope to be that good of a testimony for the Lord. What an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Well, they got to it and they did not think it was so, so beautiful. They were upset with him. And, uh, you know, it's just striking to me. Remember we were talking about Jesus becoming a man for us. We talked that last couple of Sundays. That that was as great a move by God. Jesus, the Son of God. You know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God. Jesus was God. Uh, Philippians 2, which is one of the most beautiful, brilliant chapters. And verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ who though he was, like some, some translations actually, though he was God. It says though he was in the form of God. But he was God incarnate. He was God fully God and man fully man. And so Jesus, though he was God, did not think it was uh, th- a thing to be grasped to be equal with God. But instead he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation uh, that's what King James says, but other translations says he emptied himself and he became a man. You know, he humbled himself to become a servant even unto the cross and the death of the cross. And so Jesus humbled himself and it, it, it just from the very beginning for God the Son to come and become a man, he humbled himself. It's, it's, it's hard. I don't think it's, we really wrap our minds around this the way we should try. God becoming a man for us. We talked a lot about in the, in the songs we sang today about the gospel. <clears throat> the, you know, the gospel of the angels coming, shouting uh, about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the, and then the gospel of the shepherds. You know, I loved a little. I loved a little poem that I received from uh, Rick Walsh about uh, that was written by uh, Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, Billy Graham's wife. 
and it says these <coughs> these shepherds were no were not normal shepherds. Um, you know Bethlehem, <coughs> where Jesus was born. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have my helper here today. Uh, where Jesus was born, the name Bethlehem is is house. Beth means house. House of bread. That's what it means. And of course, Jesus was the bread of life. And so he was the bread. But he's also, uh, we, we partake of his bread and we partake of his blood. And uh, the number one industry around Bethlehem, the, there's, two, there's two industries uh, that are more prevalent than all the others. One is bread, raising wheat, and the other one is sheep. These are not normal sheep. Uh, these are raising sheep for to get lambs for the slaughter, for the sacrifice in the temple. And uh, on a, a day such as, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, boy, oh, cup of cold water. Oh, that's beautiful. That will not go unrewarded. And so, um, <clears throat> they say Josephus would say that historians said that on a day like the the uh, one of the uh, when they would have the sacrifices in the. Uh, in the uh, temple, that they would sacrifice up to uh, 250,000 lambs in a day. That sounds unbelievable, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so they, had, they, they grew a lot of lambs. And at nighttime, which was at night when the shepherds came, when the angels came, at nighttime these shepherds were the boys, you know, this would be a kind of time when David would be with the sheep. And their number one job is to watch over the lambs to make sure that nothing happened to them. Because you, when they had to offer up a lamb, it had to be uh, without spot or wrinkle. And so they had to protect these lambs. Little did they know that what they are doing in a figure was protecting is like the lamb of God that is without spot or wrinkle would be sacrificed up for us. So that's symbolic. It's a metaphor of what they were doing for uh, uh, is raising the lamb. So they, it's only appropriate that they received the first gospel news of the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, today uh, the Savior is born. And so they would raise these lambs. I don't know why I got off on that, but I'll think of it in a minute. So we'll go back to Vincent van Gogh. And uh, here I would think this person is a perfect example. Now I remember. Jesus says, let this mind be in you, who was Christ, like Christ Jesus. Uh, did not think it was a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, but emptied himself. And he humbled himself and uh, became a man. 
And one of the things he says earlier, you got to see this as a picture, everything in a picture. Uh, We can even go back way further, but we're just going to take the birth of Christ to the crucifixion of Christ. And in uh, Hebrews, the 12th chapter, it talks about how uh, let this, uh, very similar, instead of let this mind, it says follow Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was a shame to be crucified on the cross. Shame. And uh, it was, uh, cursed is he that is hung on a tree. So it was a shame for him to be crucified. It was a shame for him to become a man. But he despised the shame. He, he said, I will humble, I humble myself and uh, despise the shame. And so the suffering of Christ is identifying with us. So here he is, Vincent van Gogh, in a shanty, sick, and they are saying, this is shameful of you. The central office, they're telling him, this is a shame. You should be the example of being in a nice apartment, being fed, being healthy, whole. And here you are sick and, you know, covered in cold and living in horrible conditions. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He despised the shame and he humbled himself. And so this is what Vincent van Gogh was doing. And it crushed him. It absolutely crushed him. The rejection of the central office. And uh, like I said, I thought it was a beautiful example. So he did what I would frequently do in situations like that, and that is flee, fled. You know, he, he, he left the ministry. He, that's how the rejection affected him. And so... Uh, he decided to take up, he started with charcoal. <laughs> Good thing to start with when you had plenty of that. Kind of a joke. Um, and started doing things like boots and things. <laughs> and uh, he was progressing. He, he, he thought he might have a gift for artistry. Do you think? Maybe he did? Boy, I wish I could show I wish I could put up on the picture all the Vincent van Gogh paintings. And... If I'm, I've heard, I've, there was one person who saw a Vincent van Gogh painting. And um, he said, if you see a picture of it, there's no way it does justice. Because there was just layers and layers and layers of paint on there. Now, he, he did take his own life. He shot himself with a shotgun. But he didn't die right away. He died a couple of weeks later from the wounds. But, you know, back, back when they first started painting, they would, the, the paint had a lot of lead in it, and it, it, it touched it to his lips. And so that's one of the reasons that he uh, lost his mind, uh, is because of the lead poisoning. And there were a lot of people that died from lead poisoning for uh, reasons of lead being in, induced into their system. 
So he started out with charcoals. Now here's an interesting thing, and I think it's not without accident, that his brother was an art dealer, and he sent his work. His brother would supply him with paint and other things to start with. He started small with charcoals and worked up to paint. And his brother would supply him with this paint, and then Vincent would send him send it to his brother. His brother's name was Theo, which if you know what names mean, it means God, Theo. So he's sending, Theo is supplying him with these things. He's sending his work to Theo. And Theo, as an art dealer, thought his work was so horrible that he wouldn't even put it in his galleries. He wouldn't exhibit them because they were just terrible paintings. And uh, we were thinking, well, maybe in the beginning. No, we're talking about paintings that are absolutely stunning to us today. And uh, even pictures of them are like, wow, wow, wow. Kind of makes you wonder if uh, that was his gift in the first place to to mankind. And that uh, God has gifted us all with natural gifts. And if we just just let them let them go and let dedicate them to God, we can bless God and man. And uh, so anyway, <clears throat> in Jotham's parable, if you read about Jotham when Abimelech, one of Gideon's sons, proclaimed himself to be king, in Jotham's parable, uh, he did a parable about uh, Gideon being the thorn. Thorn bush. I mean, about uh, Abimelech being the thorn bush. <clears throat> and he says to the grape, he says, Come thou grape, uh, come thou uh, grape wine uh, vineyard, come thou, thou vineyard, reign over us. You be our king. And the vineyard says, Why should I leave my fruit to reign over you? whereby which my fruit I bless God and man. I could go on with the parable because the, the rest of the, they got to the bramble and the bramble says, I'll reign over you and that's Abimelech. But the point in making is, you know, Vincent van Gogh, his, his, his gifts that God had given him bless God and man. So he went through his life and never really being recognized, right towards the end of his life, there was this one man who had seen his paintings and started to buy them from Theo, his, his brother. But until that time, nobody wanted his paintings. Uh, at one point in time, uh, uh, Vincent was very good friends with Gauguin. You might know he was a great artist. And Gauguin criticized his painting quite a bit too. He says, painting is more than just sloshing paint upon a, a canvas. But that, I think Vincent van Gogh did a lot more than just slosh paint upon canvas. Brilliant, brilliant painter, but didn't get recognized in his whole, in his entire life, was never fully accepted, but was rejected nearly his entire life. Rejected by man, rejected by his brother in a sort, you know, feeling rejected. 
So Vincent took his own life. And that is, uh, I'm not usually, I don't know, usually care that much for uh, um, political correctness. I think it's gone awry. And uh, it's like people get offended at almost anything anymore. And so the next new political correct way to say something, and, and you're just running out of room to even express anything. But one I've heard recently, like, like I said, it was about three weeks ago, never heard it before, and I said, yes, I'm in agreement with this political correct statement. So I was called uh, Susanna, Mike Isbell's brother, to tell, him, tell her about the service at, Maine, at uh, Elm Park Methodist. And so uh, I had said, you know, because, because her brother had committed suicide. And she very lovingly and nicely said, um, that, we don't say that. And I said, what? She says, no, we don't say committed suicide. Because that sounds like that they did, they committed a crime. And, you know, when, um, it's like the line in Vincent, uh, uh, he took his life as lovers often do, uh, because he just was so depressed and so down that he was hurting. Uh, we had somebody do a protest, what, three, four Sundays ago when I wasn't here in our church. And Amy described the person as, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And I'm not uh, excusing people hurting people. But when people take their own lives, and that's the way you say it, you can say they took their own life. Don't say committed, because it sounds like a, a, it's a crime, it's a, act of, a criminal act. And we, uh, I have never in my entire walk with the Lord ever once thought that when a Christian takes their own life, it costs them their salvation. I don't buy it. I do not believe that. I never have and never will. Uh, You may if you wish. That's your prerogative. But I don't believe it. Uh, I I know several Christians that have taken their own lives and I'm going to see them in heaven. I'm totally convinced of that. And uh, Samson took his own life. And God anointed him to do it. So at any rate, I don't believe that. I don't believe it's a, you know, and, you know, uh, Mike Isbell's wife loved him. His sister, Susanna, her birthday's on the 28th of December. He took his own life on the 29th of December, the day after her birthday, four days after Christmas. And he was just hurting. He was hurting. And his wife loved him, and he had a devoted wife. And uh, you would think, why would he do this to her, you know? Well, he's just hurting. He's hurting, hurting beyond imagination. And so when somebody's taking their own life, uh, don't just put them, lump them into some place, you know, and, and uh, hate them for it, you know. Uh, they're just hurting. So if you have someone... 
And maybe you should, because if somebody, we have people in this church that have taken their own lives, and uh, it hurts. It really hurts. But um, enough said about that. But I want to talk to you more about rejection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, love you, Lord. Love you so much. Love you, Lord Jesus. Love you, Holy Spirit. We worship the three in one. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we uh, poise ourselves before you, humbly before you, asking for you to touch us with your word. In Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. On the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made his son sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, the, the lamb that was out spot or wrinkle, took upon him the sins of the world. Verse of scripture says the wrath of God was poured out on his son. Uh, One of of my favorite worship songs is this Celtic. It was written in Ireland. It's a Celtic song. And it talks about uh, Christ alone. And it says the wrath of God was satisfied. All of the wrath that God has for the sins of this world and for the people of this world was poured out on his son. The hardest part for Christ uh, facing this was not uh, the crucifixion, although it was, it was tough, or becoming a man, which was amazing, despising the shame, becoming a man, despising the shame to be crucified. But the hardest part was even the wrath of God being poured out upon him was when his father turned his back on the Son. The separation of the union of God. One person once said to me, uh, I don't know if I believe in the benevolence of God anymore. You know, the goodness of God, what God wants to do, good things. And I thought about that for some time, and I thought, I was praying over that, and I thought, let me think a minute. And I wasn't even at that time thinking that God became a man. And by the way, that's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, the good news, the gospel, the evangelizo of, of, of God is that God became a man and he humbled himself to become a servant and he served all the way to the cross, the death of the cross. But I also talk about in Hebrews 6 where it says, Uh, God, even though it was impossible for God to lie, when he made a promise to Abraham and that promise that he was making to Abraham is connected metaphorically to the promise that he made of Jesus on the cross. You understand that? He said when he made a promise to Abraham, because there wasn't anything greater than God to swear by, he swore by himself saying, blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. And that is a metaphor of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when he says he swore by, he swore by himself, uh, which means if I fail to keep my promise, I will destroy myself. 
That's what it meant. And so God sent his son to die for us. That's the best gift that he could possibly have given. You talk about benevolence of God. All the things that God could possibly do for you from, from the breath to the death or from the, you know, inception to conception to uh, today, to your death, whatever, all the things that God could possibly do, health, wealth, and everything else, all rolled up in one. If he did everything perfect for you, it wouldn't amount to to a grain of sand compared to the entire beach if you lost your own soul. You know, if we gain the whole world but lose our soul. And so all the sands of the world relate is, is what Christ did when he died for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. He gave the best he had. And then we can see in Ephesians, the first chapter and going into the second chapter, that the greatest uh, act that God has ever, ever done. Now, when you start measuring the greatness of God's act, you might think to yourself, well, God's uh, ability is limitless. You know, he's omni, omnipotent. He's, he's all powerful. That may be true. But when Daniel fasted and was after to seek a word from the Lord, it took 21 days for Michael to bring it to him because he was being opposed by the prince of Persia, which was a demon of Persia. 21 days. You know, if God is so powerful, why would it take so long to get this message to Daniel? 21 days, these angels were fighting to get this message to Daniel. So that gives you that there are, there's, there's, there's some kind of limitations to the power of God. You know, it gives you, in other words, there's something that's easy for God, and then there's something that is a little more difficult for God. You understand what I'm saying? The greatest and the most difficult thing that God has ever done and ever will do was when he raised Jesus from the dead. And we know that because what raising Jesus from the dead was not the big deal. It goes into the second chapter, says, and you. In other words, when he raised Jesus from the dead and you. The greatest act that God has ever done or ever will do was not creating the universe by saying, let there be light. No, the greatest act that he ever has done or ever will do is when he raised Don Yarbrough from the dead. Because I was in Christ. Wasn't raising his son from the dead. It was getting me out of there, out of hell. So he gave the best gift that he ever had, that he ever could give. He went, the most powerful act that he has ever done or ever will do was done to save me. And then it says in Hebrews 6 that because God could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And he says, so that that may, and this is where we get our, our evening service name from, anchor, this very verse. It says, so that we will have an anchor and a solid anchor into uh, the hope that we have of, of eternal life, of God. So he gave the best he had. He went to the furthest he's ever gone or ever will go to, Ray, to, to, to do it. And then to, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself so that we would believe him. 
So, and he says in two immutable things. One is he swore by himself and the other one is impossible for him to lie in the first place. But even though it was impossible for him to lie, he swore by himself. So he, he, he went as far as he could go that we might believe it. And then you can say that God is not a benevolent God. You know what the problem is with that? Now God, you know, Jesus says, when you ask God for things, you ask for bread, he's going to give you bread. You know, if we which are able to know how to give good gifts to our children, God knows what things you have need of even before you ask him. He wants to take care of you. Amen? I, that's, that's for sure. Absolutely. But all of that that he might do for that doesn't compare to those three things that I was just sharing. It doesn't even compare. But God wants us to, to believe him. Now, here's the problem. Here is, here's the problem. I, I know somebody in this church was part of this church for 25 years. He left the church because he just didn't believe in the benevolence of God anymore. Now, I'm going to tell you, here is the problem with that. It's all you have to do is change one little letter to another little letter. That's all we have to do. And if you can change, if you can make this change, you ain't never going to walk out on God because he's not doing something you want him to do. That'll never happen. And what is that? You see, you, the attitude that says, you know, God hasn't answered my prayers. Therefore, I'm walking out on him. That attitude is because you have an attitude that God owes you something. Owes you. O-W-E-S. Owes. O-W-E-S. That, th- that three little wor- three letter word, O-W-E-S. I know the ones that are laughing, I know why. Change that E to an N. And God owns you. God doesn't owe you anything. And if you think he does, you're not long for this walk with God. God owns you, not owes you. He gave the best he had to save you. He went as far as he could go to save you. And he went as far as he could go to get you to believe it. All right. Okay, this is in the middle of a statement where Paul, if you, the whole book of 2 Corinthians has this interwoven truth into it. And that is that uh, the Corinth, the church at Corinth, did not respect Paul. And all the way through it, you can see this thing that some of the greatest truths of all. I just quoted one while ago out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made his son sin who knew no sin that we might be made the right. The whole chapter, the whole book is filled with beautiful truths that we can be blessed by. But it's also filled with interwoven hints of something 
about this church at Corinth. And so he's, try, he's trying to get them to appreciate him throughout the book. And so he's in the middle of this talking about him compared to other, other uh, apostles and leaders. And then it says this, uh, go to, I'm sorry, did I say 26? I'm sorry, 23. I, I was wrong. 23. Are they, the other leaders, ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. You know, you saw the beating of Christ in the passion of Christ. Paul got it five times. Thirty-nine stripes, five times. His back from, and, they, and I'm going to tell you, when they give you this thing, they tie you to a pole, stark naked, and they whip your back so you're shredded from heel to, to, to head. Most people don't even live through 39 stripes. Five times. This is another reason why I am so convinced uh, what Jesus went through on the cross is plenty for me, but I'm convinced that wasn't the big deal for him. Because when we're going to see here that what Paul went through was significantly more physical suffering than Jesus Christ. Except for one thing, Paul was never made sin with our sin, and Paul was never the, the God turning his back on his son, on him. Next verse. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness and watchings often. In hunger and thirst and fastings often. In cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without. And this is what I'm, I think he's actually saying here. Uh, he's, he's saying above all. Above all. I think that's what he's saying here. He says besides those things that are without. That which cometh upon me daily. The care of the churches. So you see, the thing that was most, that he struggled with the most, and this is what I believe he said, above all, above all the five times 39 stripes, above all the thrice beaten with rods, above all the sufferings that I went through, the care of the churches was the, the most. All right, next verse. Who is weak? I am, and I am not weak. Who is offended? And, and not, uh, excuse me, who is weak and am not weak? Who is offended and it burneth not? Often I must needs glory. I will glory in things which concern my infirmities. In other words, he says, I'm going to he's saying right here something. If I'm going to glory, sounds like he's bragging, right? But he says, no, I, if, if anything I got to brag about is my infirmities. That's why Paul says three things. I was just talking about th- three things. And there's somebody here who told me one time this was their favorite song uh, by Meatloaf. 
Meatloaf had this song where he's singing about a girl who sings this. He's quoting what she says to him in the song. And she says, he says to her, he says, uh, she says to him, uh, I, I need you, I want you, but I could never love you. Did you like somebody say that? I, I want you, I need you, but I could never love you. But don't be sad, because three out of two out of three ain't bad. Some of you might remember that song. She says to him, I need you, I want you, but I could never love you. But don't be sad, because two out of three ain't bad. Two out of three is a deal buster. Hello? We need God. We want God. But if we don't love God, two out of three is really bad. Hello? Well, Paul says that I may know him. Praise the Lord. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Hallelujah. And the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute right there. Hold on. Two out of three ain't bad. No. If I must needs the glory, I will glory the things which concern my infirmities. Next verse. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aratus, Aratus, the king, kept the city of Damascus with a garrison desirous to apprehend, him, apprehend me. And through a window in a basket was I let down. You remember, this is when he was first converted, and he went... <laughs> He went to proclaiming the gospel so much that they wanted to kill him. Surprise. Through a window, they let him down in a basket through the wall, and he escaped, they, he escaped their hands. Next verse. Chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Here we go. So he continues on. You know, chapters were put in by man. Sometimes they're very valuable. He says, It is not for me, doubtless, to glory... I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, he's going to say something here, and it's, it's, it's very tricky, but I am totally convinced, and I have not yet to have a single person disagree with me yet. Who, and, and I'm talking about people that did not agree with me before I shared this with them. And I'm talking about hundreds of pastors. Okay? And he says this, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. He is talking about himself. That's why, why he gives the first clue. And doubtless I will not glory. I won't glory in such a way, except in this way, as if it happened to somebody else. And then he, he says in the first verse, that I come to wisdom, uh, revelations uh, of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years old. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. There's another one, another clue right there. I couldn't tell. It's not that you can't tell whether the other person was in or out of the body. He's talking about himself. I cannot tell whether out of the body. I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such one was caught up into the third heaven. He's talking about himself. I knew such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. 
How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words means it's not to his advantage to say all the things that he was going to say. So he says unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for man to utter, not wise for man to utter. Of such a one will glory. I would, he could say it this way, in such a way will I glory. In such a way, as if it's somebody else. Yet of myself I glory not. I won't glory in myself this way. That I was caught up into a third heaven and, and talked with God and God told me things. He says, but, it, but instead I glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses. For though I would desire to glory, in other words, I would, I would like to be able to tell you this happened to me. I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you it happened to somebody else because and he'll, he'll explain it all. I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think above me, which uh, seeth me to be, or heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Okay, now what's he saying here? He's saying, it's him. But I, and he's, he, he's, he knows, he is expecting that they pick up on this because you, you, it's written through the whole book that they do not respect him and they are the problem primarily above all of all the things that happen to him. It's the way church, the church of Corinth is treating him is the worst of all the things. Right. And he wrote more to the Church of Corinth than any, than all, you know, nearly all the other letters combined. All right? First and second Corinthians. Lest I be exalted above everything, there was abundance to me a revelation. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. Yes, there was a messenger from Satan. There was a demon, but the demon was working on this problem that with, with Corinth. He, this is where the, 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 the whole problem, because the, his whole ministry, his whole life, his whole work of God is riding in the balance of how he handles this. This demon is using the church at Corinth to, to get him. Right? God uses demons and sometimes he uses demons, use us. And we are being used unaware when we reject people. It says, uh, was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times. Remember that. He sought the Lord three times. It says that it might depart from me. Now this is how we handle, first of all, we need to understand, this is how we handle rejection. This is the answer. We seek the Lord. We, you know what, when, when we get rejected by what's the instinct, what is what we want to, what do we want to do? I know what I want to do. I know I want to do what exactly Vincent Van Gogh did. Walk away. You know, the last thing I ever want to be or do is to go someplace I'm not wanted. You know, you don't want me. You don't have to tell me twice. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm finished. Capito, you know. Capito? No, that's understand. It's been a long time since I lived in Italy. Uh, Finito. I'm finished. All right? 
And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's the reason why we get rejected in life. It's because, see, if, 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 he says, unless I get exalted above measure. Bob Mumford used to say that his wife was kind of melancholic, but he was kind of like uh, high, high, high-minded, too high-minded, you know, and he was always up in the air, up in the, up in the heavens, you know, in his mind. And he says, but once, if she, if she would get, if, if, he, if he would get to flying too high, she would reach up and jump, pull his tail feathers all out and make him fall back down to earth, you know. So sometimes rejection, there's a purpose for it. What is the purpose for rejection? We get rejected by people. Oh, I love that. Don't you? No, we don't. We hate it. We hate being rejected. And I want to walk away, run away, run away, walk away. And I'm not, you know, you you don't have to tell me twice. I'm gone. What is the purpose of rejection? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the purpose of rejection. Because if we weren't rejected, like Paul says, unless I get exalted above measure. Hello? Do you, you see what I'm saying? Come from? Unless I get too high-minded, I'm no earthly good. It says that in Romans 12. Mind not the high things of God, but instead condescend of men to, to men of low degree. So it says, why? Because God says this. When you come to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you understand what that means? That means God says, when people reject you, then you have to rely on me instead of your own goodness and your own ability in your own giftings in your own savoir-faire. I'm sure I said that right. Not. My grace is sufficient. Why? For my strength is made perfect. In your weakness, in my weakness, that's when God can come on the scene. And the glory, God gets the glory. Because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Somebody say amen. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Next verse. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am become a fool in glorying. You have compelled me. You've made it so. There's another hint that it's the church of Corinth. They're the ones. They're his thorn in the flesh. If you look in the Old Testament or any other place else, the thorn in the flesh was always related to personalities on the earth. Hello? Israel's thorn in the flesh were the Midianites. Jesus' thorn in the flesh was the crown of thorn. The whole crucifixion was his thorn. The crown of thorns, which was what? Mocking him as being king of the Jews. He came unto his own. But his own refused him, uh, his own rejected him. 
His own rejected him. He says, I am therefore, he says, for in nothing I am behind the very chiefest of all apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of the apostle was wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is that, <clears throat> what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself, this is, this is where I think Paul is, and there's probably at least a dozen places in, in 2 Corinthians where he is sarcastic. I believe Paul can be very sarcastic. And this is one of the most sarcastic statements he says. He says, For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? And in other places, in early it says, Other churches have taken care of me so that I could serve you. They went out on the line to take care of my needs so that I could serve you to the church at Corinth. And here he says, except it be that I myself was not a burden to you, forgive me this wrong. If that isn't sarcasm, I don't understand what sarcasm really is. Forgive me for not taking money from you. Hello? Okay, behold. What does it say? The third time. I sought the Lord three times. The first time was the first time I came to you. <laughs> the second time is the third, second time. The third time is now. I sought the Lord that I might, what he's actually saying here is, is I sought the Lord that the church at Corinth, I could cut them loose. Let them go. I sought the Lord three times and God says, no. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Hello? You can't let them go. Hello? I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. I don't want yours. I don't want your money. I want you. Hallelujah. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents instead for the children. Now we'll stop right there. He sought the Lord three times. Now he's ready. He says, I'm ready to come to you the third time. Because God has made it abundantly clear that his grace is made perfect in my weakness. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And his grace is sufficient for me. Hallelujah. That's how you handle rejection. You say, God, I want to cut them loose. And God says, no, no. You got to love them. Render, render not cursing for blessing, but instead blessing for blessing. I was talking to a, 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 one of the lifeguards and she says to me, you know, I can forgive anybody that does anything to me, but if they do anything to my children... Man, they're going to find out what Mama Bear is like. And uh, I'm going to get them. And God help them. God help them. And I said, you know, I used to feel exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. That uh, you hurt my children. And boy, look out. I have since changed my mind. Right? And this is the reason why. I told her, I said, I've changed, I've changed my mind because I'm going to be a little more nasty than you are. 
I'm going to be a whole lot worse than you are. And you know how to do that? It says, uh, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. In Romans 12, it says, render not cursing for cursing, but instead blessing. Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I used to interpret that, that you know, God saying vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I used to interpret it as like, because God saith vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know? But you see, now if some if God if if some if somebody hurt my children, I'm gonna do something way, way worse to them than physically hurt them. I'm gonna forgive them and let God handle it. And they're in real trouble now. Boy, what I could do doesn't even come close to what he can do. Now, if he saves them, wonderful. But if they won't respond, wow. I couldn't even begin to make them suffer as much as God can. And if I stand and not forgive them, then I stand in his way. That's what it says in Romans 12. But if I forgive them, vengeance is God's. He will repay. So I says, I'd rather, I, I take stronger methods against people that, uh, that hurt me. I'll let God take them out. <laughs> Boy, that's good. That, that'll, that'll, he's going to do it. I hope that they would get saved. You know, I hope. If they're already saved, I hope that they would see the harm and repent. But I forgive. Hello. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. His grace is sufficient for me. That is the purpose of rejection. Why? So this attitude that was in Christ can be an ark. And we, see, despising the shame. It's an embarrassment when somebody hurts you. It's an embarrassment when you get rejected. But you despise the shame. Hello? You can shout amen if you want. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And we thank you that, Heavenly Father, you rejected your uh, Son so that we would not be rejected by you. Wow, that's just staggering, Heavenly Father. That's just amazing that you poured out all your wrath on him, that you poured out all our sins upon him. Oh, God, that's just amazing. And when others hurt us, it is so minor, no matter how great it may seem. We all seem to maybe have a Judas in our, in our lives or maybe multiple Judases in our lives. We all have someone that's hurt us, but all of it combined doesn't compare to the hurt of my sin on my Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't even compare to that. So Lord, I forgive them for it. And your grace is made perfect. I don't want to cut them loose. I want to all the more serve them. 
and have your grace be sufficient for me and have your strength made perfect in my weakness. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' wonderful, precious name. Amen and amen and amen. Hallelujah.